Welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series is produced with the general public, patients, and healthcare professionals in mind. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Scott Sischer, who is the director of the Elliott and Rosalind Jaffe Food Allergy Institute and the Elliott and Rosalind Jaffe Professor of Pediatric Allergy and Immunology at Mount Sinai. He is chief of the Division of Allergy and Immunology in the Department of Pediatrics and medical director of the Clinical Research Unit at Mount Sinai. Dr. Sishura currently serves on the Board of Directors for the Academy and is an Associate Editor for the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. He is an accomplished researcher with over 200 peer-reviewed publications, and his research interests include the epidemiology, natural history, and psychosocial aspects of managing food allergies. Dr. Sishura, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Well, we're currently recording this during Food Allergy Awareness Week in May of 2019. Dr. Sisher, in your opinion, what aspects related to food allergy cause the most misunderstanding among the general public? That's a good question. You know, I think uh, one of the classic things that people uh, have confusion about is that whole question of food allergy versus food intolerance, where allergy is the immune system, the part of the body that usually fights infection, getting uh, riled up against the foods that we eat and causing illness versus intolerance, which the classic is lactose intolerance, where it's a problem with digestion. So, for example, with milk, uh, sugar, or lactose intolerance, there's a deficiency of an enzyme, and people, if they ingest too much of that sugar, if they drink too much milk, for example, might get bloating or loose stools, um, not a life-threatening situation where allergy is more of a life-threatening situation, potentially. So I think that's a common one. But I think the other thing that often is misunderstood in the community is the severity issues uh, that people kind of will think, oh, gee, it's food allergy, so it's like a bother. They can't have some of this or, or you know, eat it. Um, but really, the idea that some people have reactions to even small amounts of the food or trace amounts of the food that could be potentially severe. So I think a lot of times people don't appreciate that part of it. And probably the biggest thing that's not appreciated is just the, how hard it is to live with a food allergy. It's you know it's different than um, a distaste for food or an intolerance where if you make a mistake, you know nothing terrible would happen, but something bad can happen if you make a mistake with food allergy, and that leads to a lot of work for people living with this. And I think that a lot of times people misunderstand or don't appreciate all of what's involved in staying away from the food that you're allergic to. So yeah, I agree. That's a common misunderstanding, and, and you did a nice job of separating the two between allergy and intolerance, but can you give our listeners a better sense of how severe a food allergy reaction can be and what some of the symptoms might look like? Well, 
you know, there, there are sort of two things going on. One is uh, how sensitive somebody might be to the food. Um, so some people might actually not get sick until with a food allergy, might not get sick until they eat a you know, pretty substantial amount. And other people might react to even a small amount. The more typical uh, symptoms that you might see are actually ones that aren't life threatening. So rashes like hives, uh, welts on the skin that look like mosquito bites or maybe some flaring of pre-existing rashes like eczema flaring. There could be some stomach ache or vomiting. None of those are, those are common symptoms, the skin and, and gut symptoms, but they're not typically intrinsically life-threatening. But then you can have symptoms in the respiratory tract, so breathing issues, throat tightness, trouble breathing, coughing, asthma-like symptoms, which could be much more uh, life-threatening, and then circulation could be involved, so the heart pumping the blood around the body. Um, this could be affected with low blood pressure, and people can get dizzy or confused, pass out, uh, have low blood pressure, and between the respiratory and the circulation problems, that's where the life-threatening comes in. And so, and you mentioned that this can really impact somebody's life, and now we understand why because of the potential severity. Can you give us some insight into, you know, what does this actually look like on a daily basis for somebody with a food allergy? How does that impact them? So, for listeners who aren't uh, dealing with uh, having to manage food allergies, it, it you may not appreciate how much goes into this because it's like living in a landmine. Like, think about how much everyone uh, will do with eating each day. I mean, there's you know three meals a day, but there's also snacks. Uh, so if every meal means that you have to start thinking, you know, how is this prepared? Does it have the ingredients in it that I'm avoiding? And then think about, you know, how we live our lives with social activities. I mean, almost everything that we do or children will do surrounds around food. So, you know, whether it's a birthday party or Thanksgiving or holidays like Christmas or um, part, New Year's parties, birthday parties, it's just the list goes on and on. And, and almost everything that we do socially has to do with eating. Now take that back and think everything I put in my mouth, you know, where, where did the person who make this for me, do they know about the allergies? Could they have accidentally gotten an ingredient in there? Am I going to have an allergic reaction? Is it safe for me to eat this? I have to read these ingredient labels. There's just a lot that will go into um, safety in terms of avoiding the food. And, and the other associated topic with that is what to do if you if you do have symptoms, how to treat those. And would you say, in your experience and opinion, and working with these these patients and families, um, can this negatively impact somebody's quality of life? Well, we we did some of the first studies on uh, quality of life, and there have been many studies showing how food allergy can impact, reduce, basically, um, quality of life. And it, and it goes back to what I was uh, discussing, just the amount of work that goes into um, keeping yourself safe from accidentally ingesting the food, all of the different circumstances surrounding that. Um, it, it just takes a lot of uh, energy and and. And sometimes people will avoid circumstances where they, you know, would potentially be socializing or getting the foods that might be an, an issue for them. So, so there's an incredible impact on quality of life. Now, to go back to some of the struggles with management that you mentioned, um, can you touch upon some of the issues that are more pertinent for toddlers compared to school-aged children and then adolescents or adults? Because I'm sure that this varies dramatically. It it does. And, you know, I think about what I would be saying to a family as I'm educating them in my office practice. And, you know, when someone is coming in with very young children, it's really all about the, the caregivers, uh, making sure that they understand how to make safe meals, how to avoid cross contact, which means, you know, for example, you put the 
knife into the peanut butter and then put it into the jelly jar. And now the jelly jar has peanut in it. And the next time someone goes to that jar, it's been cross-contacted with the allergen and they have to worry about it. Um, so, so with the with that and hidden ingredients, so you know the idea that you know, something you wouldn't think has a food in it that you were avoiding, but it turns out that it can because it's in a sauce or it's just a minor ingredient that you didn't think about or that someone else prepared the food and it, it may not be safe or that you have to carefully read the labels. All of these aspects really uh, also include people who are going to be taking care of young children. So it's grandparents, it's you know babysitters, it's whoever may be you know providing um, food or supervising an, an infant or a toddler. Toddlers also... You know, can grab things, so it's it's a it's a great fun age. But they also you know have to worry that if they're near other children who are eating something that they're not allowed to eat, are they going to just grab it? Because of course they're not going to have the judgment for that. So I'll have those types of discussions with families with the young children. As the children get a little bit older, you know, I'm telling families more about um, you know what what would be the responsibility of a of a young child who doesn't really know anything about reading or, or anything like that. But you know, they they for example might understand that they have an allergy where they where you know they can eat food let's say by someone who they know um can, knows what's safe for them so so i might explain to that family that you know they would say well grandma and your teacher sally know what and mom and dad know what foods are okay for you but you know other people don't so that the young child is just thinking about who they're getting the food from but as they get into grade school i have conversations about Letting the child partner in, in getting their safe food and also carrying medications um, or at least understanding the medications. So as children learn to read, um, they can take a first shot at, look, at reading ingredient labels and under their family supervision, of course, and kind of uh, participate in the process of making sure their, their foods are safe. And then it's a completely different discussion as the children start to get older. Um, when the children can start to speak up more for themselves, I want them to you know understand about their allergies so that, for example, if the family is going to a restaurant, the child uh, can start the conversation with the uh, staff in the restaurant, and then maybe the family can carry on to do more details of it. And with teenagers now, you know, I would hope that by that age they have done more transitioning to understand, you know, how to how to talk to restaurants, to understand how to make sure that their peers know about their allergies. But I'll throw the uh, parents out of the room and have conversations with teenagers about kissing. Um, in other words, if the person that they're kissing was eating the food that they're allergic to and then they're mouth-to-mouth kissing, that would be an issue. I'm not worried about kiss on the cheek, but just mouth-to-mouth kissing in that case. I'll talk to teenagers about alcohol because uh, that could impair their judgment and they might eat something they weren't going to eat otherwise, or it actually can make uh, reactions worse, sort of uh, potentiate reactions, and that's an issue. Um, I'll also have the, you know, uh, drugs isn't <laughs> is not a good thing either, but, but in terms of the food allergy, for them to make sure that they are carrying their medications, um, hopefully have medical identification jewelry, or at least have their phone set so that it's easily accessible for a health app so that people could see you know, what, what allergies they might have if they got into trouble. So the conversations and the instructions really change, but they kind of do so in a gradual process over the, uh, the life course. So it, it, that's a, a great description of that, and it sounds to me like you're really promoting active involvement of children from a very young age, both in uh, understanding their food allergy and, and what a reaction will look like, but also in reading labels and communicating with others. Uh, is that I something think, that you routinely do? 
Yeah, and I think parents uh, appreciate and expect that as well. Um, but sometimes a family might get into a pattern of just having the parents take over all of the aspects of, of ensuring the child's safety and, and forget that they should be including them. We had, we had actually surveyed uh, allergists and surveyed parents about when the time would be for giving the child increasing responsibility. And interestingly, parents came up with ages that were even younger than allergists were thinking. Um, so even as young as seven, eight, nine, ten, to to you know have more responsibilities. But I think it, it's going to be different for each child, uh, and so it's individualized. But yeah, a gradual increase in responsibility makes a lot of sense. And you know, we know that when food allergies are diagnosed, they're being diagnosed by a whole range of uh, physicians and providers among different levels. It's not just allergists that have access to especially blood food allergy testing. So do you have any advice in regards to, you know, when a child is first diagnosed with food allergy, regardless of who's making the diagnosis, what education should be provided to the family at that visit? I think uh, I didn't speak much yet about treatment aspects and recognition of symptoms and how to treat them is very important. Um, it might be beyond the scope of this podcast to go into in, in depth, but basically recognizing symptoms that would warrant using epinephrine, self-injectable epinephrine promptly as first aid management. Uh, so what I'll usually uh, do with a family of it, with new diagnosis is to give them some examples of uh, scenarios where they would uh, inject self-injectable epinephrine uh, and get to the emergency room for further care. I am careful to separate the notion there because a lot of times families will walk away with the idea of, well, you know, if you give epinephrine, it's tied to going to an emergency room almost as if the epinephrine is dangerous in some way. Um, but epinephrine, uh, as you know, helps the more severe symptoms, opens up the airway for breathing and makes the blood circulation strong, gives you time to get to the emergency room. So I separate those concepts that epinephrine has a lot of advantages, um, that it uh, that it makes you feel better quickly and uh, that Using it early makes it less likely that you're going to need more doses or end up staying in the hospital or anything like that, but that you're going to the emergency room for, for more care. And I'll go through what the mild symptoms are and what the more severe symptoms are and when they would use their epinephrine and how to uh, use other medications like antihistamines um, or asthma medications. And, and, and those latter medicines, the antihistamines and um, asthma medications, of course, are not the primary treatment for severe allergic reaction or anaphylaxis. And then... Um, make sure that they're comfortable with that by giving little vignettes. And, and then the second thing that's important, I think, with the new diagnosis is going through avoidance issues, which, as I've already alluded to, involves you know, age-based uh, instructions and issues about restaurants and label reading and hidden ingredients and cross-contact. But I think that um, a third component that sometimes is overlooked is just general counsel, um, especially with a new diagnosis. There's a lot to take in in one visit. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, anxiety that comes up and a lot of things to talk about. And I think it's really helpful for a family to sort of get get some of that starter information, but then go home, make a list of questions, and then have a follow-up visit where they can really go through more details. Um, understanding, you know, that I think there's a lot about um, uh, things that make people worry about casual exposure. Like, what if I'm near the food I'm allergic to? Or what if I smell it? Um, and I think early conversations about um, focusing on avoidance of ingestion, that eating the food is the main way that you would end up with an allergic reaction and 
talking about that compared to, you know, accidentally touching a food that you're allergic to and that that's not likely to lead to any severe reactions. I think that that helps with some of the general counseling of living day to day with food allergy without being overly impacted in ways that, that are that would be more than what's necessary. That sounds like a lot to cover in one visit. It is, which is why I said the second visit and also giving people information about resources is important as well. Now, I, I love that point. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, vetted resources are extremely helpful so they can find information after that visit. And then uh, just quickly, about how often do you think somebody with a food allergy, say they have no other chronic conditions and it's just food allergy, how often should they return uh, for uh, monitoring or counseling or anticipatory guidance? Well, from from a technical standpoint, I, you know, I think uh, it, it, it's, you know, how often are you going to test somebody is often the question that the family is thinking. And you know, we I think we often will will do repeated testing uh, more often in the younger age group. So if we're seeing people in the first you know two or three years of life, we're doing something maybe every six months or annually. Whereas if you have someone who's maybe 10, 12, 14 years old, you may not really need to do testing every year, and you could probably spread that out more. But to answer your question, I recommend a yearly visit. Um, even for families where things aren't changing that much, because there's always so many questions that people have that and they they don't realize that just having the visit really gives you time to address the day-to-day issues. I mean, you're living every single day with a food allergy. Even a once-a-year visit with a doctor isn't a lot of time to talk about what, what happens all the rest of the year. So at minimum, I do recommend a yearly visit. And as I mentioned, for for a new diagnosis, I think it's important to have a sort of a follow-up, more comprehensive visit. And as you alluded to, a lot of times the first diagnosis is made by the pediatrician or or general uh, practitioner. And then that also can give the allergist the opportunity to let that clean up in a way and spend some more time talking about all the many questions. I, I totally encourage patients to make lists like I, I applaud it when people come in with you know, several pages of questions. It actually makes it so much more organized uh, and, and can approach what people want to really understand better. Uh, great tips. And, you know, we've we really covered a lot so far in, in regards to how challenging it is not only to diagnose food allergy, but to manage it as well. And if it's okay with you, what I'd like to do is really get into some specific scenarios, because uh, I think that uh, people listening might really benefit from uh, some of the, you know, details that aren't always covered uh, in other areas. Sure. So summer offers a break from the daily routine that the school year brings. Uh, There's often summer camps involved or changes to the schedule. In your opinion, what areas of food allergy management are at greatest risk of falling by the wayside during this transition to a different summer schedule? Well, I think you just uh, actually touched on them in in asking me the question. So, uh, you know, if someone is starting a summer camp, whether, you know, it's a day camp, for example, now you are in a place where so potentially new people. There's also often younger uh, supervisory individuals. You know, the camp counselors often someone who might just be 15, 16, 17 years old themselves and may not know that much. Most uh, or many camps will have uh, you know either a more of a, an older adult or maybe a, a nurse or some other healthcare professional who uh, may be overseeing certain things. But it it is a transition that's worth having a discussion before you start. Um, in terms of you know how will the child be getting safe foods and who's going to be watching and being able to um, potentially uh, recognize and treat an allergic reaction and I think nowadays a lot of uh, 
camps and schools for that matter have already uh, experienced having a lot of children who have food allergies. Um, there can always be variations in the number of foods or types of foods or severity of the allergies, but in general, they usually will have some plans um, to talk about. Um, but again, with travel, then you're talking about, or actually I should say for overnight camps, it's a whole other uh, ball game, so to speak, because now it's much more likely that the camp is going to have to be providing the food for the child as opposed to just a bagged lunch type of scenario where you can potentially take the uh, food uh, variable out of the story in some cases. But if, if, if a child's getting both many or all of their meals from the camp, then there's a lot more conversation that would have to go on with the um, with the food staff. Uh, again, hopefully uh, for many camps, they're already somewhat familiar, but depending again on the allergies, you know, some conversation in advance of uh, signing up for camp uh, would be my advice to make sure that everyone is comfortable with providing a safe food that the people you know will will know to identify uh, what's safe and how to prepare foods that are safe from cross contact and don't have the allergens that the the child is at, at risk from um so all of this takes preparation and camping you know you're in more re remote locations and I like to throw in that you know when you're traveling far or in areas where you're farther from medical uh uh, help, it's all the more important to make sure that your food source is safe. You're not going to you know, want to try try to eat something that you have never tried before um, or maybe depend on someone who is naive in, in, in making foods. So there's a lot more, I think, uh, attention to making sure that the food is safe to begin with um, because there could be a delay in getting uh, to help. So, you know, while we're talking about summer camp, in, in your opinion and experience, um, is there a, a safe pathway or a blueprint that families can follow uh, as long as they have appropriate conversations and planning and preparation where kids with food allergy uh, can happily attend summer camp? Oh, yeah. I, I think, well, you know, there there are some summer camps that specifically uh, cater to food allergic individuals, but I don't, I mean, I think those camps are great. But I, I think that, you know, a child should go to the summer camp that they want to go to and, and hopefully that particular camp, you know, even if it's uh, just any general camp, uh, would be able to provide a safe environment. It just takes some additional preparation. And I give similar advice for, you know, starting school or changing schools. I think it makes sense to sit down with the camp uh, personnel who are, you know, in charge, basically. So whether it's the um, director or a camp nurse or the um, food services in the camp in advance, just basically start the conversation with what do you do for children who have food allergies? Um, I, I prefer that start than compared to gathering a whole bunch of uh, lists of things that I would, you know, that a family might want the camp to do, uh, but rather to ask what does the camp do? How has their experience been doing it? Have the children, have a prior children had, you know, the food allergies that are similar to the the camper that, that uh, the conversation is happening around, uh, and just see what they have to say about their past experiences, if there have been any issues, how they've addressed them, how what the camp day looks like um, for, for their sensitivity to somebody who has a food allergy, who would need to have uh, safe meals and access to um, medications if necessary, what happens if they're um, taking trips off-site, off um, who would be uh, responsible for, again, making sure that the meals are safe and for um, recognizing and treating any reactions. And, and I think, you know, nowadays many of the camps are already going to have those answers ready and, and know what they've been doing. And then there could be a conversation around any details that are concerning. Uh, and hopefully in most cases, uh, it's possible to make a safe uh, scenario for the child, but everyone has to be comfortable with it. 
Sure. And, and as you mentioned, there's a lot to think through, which will be individualized based upon the family and the child and the, and the camp preparation. So that's great. That's uh, some good insight for everybody listening. Um, now, we also know that during the summer, a lot of people travel and take vacations. Uh, can you offer some tips to help people with food allergies travel safely, particularly if they're going to go on an airplane? Sure. So, you know, this is a big part of our conversations. Uh, you're, this is being recorded in May, uh, Food Allergy Awareness Week, and, you know, we're heading toward the summer season and people are definitely preparing for their summer vacations and travels, um, which means airlines. And there's there is a lot of anxiety about traveling with food allergy on an airplane, and that's understandable. Uh, you're, you know, locked in a, in a metal box, essentially, away from uh, emergency rooms and uh, you know, the, the food that you're going to eat on that plane has to be safe. And, you know, there, there are concerns along those lines. So I guess it's, you know, important, first of all, to make sure that for any time you're anywhere to have the correct medications available, know how to use them, have them up to date, the prescriptions up to date. And if you're, if you're traveling, then having extra on hand. So if you did uh, have to use something, you'd have backup so that you know, you wouldn't have to worry like, oh, how am I going to get a pres- prescription filled now? I'm far away, you know, from my home base, and how do I contact people? So it's better to have, you know, some backups with you. Um, the airplane uh, is is an issue for um, the the reasons I mentioned before in terms of the anxiety that people might have being kind of locked away from help in a, in essence. Um, but it, it just I think is uh, primarily it goes back to what I mentioned earlier. The, the main way that someone's going to have a significant allergic reaction is by ingestion of the food. So it's incredibly important um, when you're traveling, including actually on the airplane, to have a, a safe um, source of of the food. Um, the airplane wouldn't be a place where you would say, "Hey, I you know I never tried this uh, nut before. Let me try it here because they served it." Um, that would you know, probably not be a good idea for someone who's prone to allergy to try something new on an airplane. I know that sounds a little ridiculous, but um, it's, it's just a, a basic, you know, thing is, you know, if I've never tried, you know, some food before, now's not the time to try it when I'm prone to allergies. Um, you can bring foods with you. You can bring some safe uh, foods. Uh, you can contact the airline in advance to make sure that the meals would be safe. But I think the biggest thing is about making sure that what you're actually putting in your mouth is going to be safe. And there's a lot of concern about, you know, in an airplane being near other people who are eating the foods, um, that there could be residual uh, food proteins on the tray table or, or seat. So for younger kids in particular, you know, my main concern would be that, sure, there might be people who've eaten some allergens on the, on the seat before and it wasn't cleaned well. If you have, uh, you know, a 10-year-old, they're probably not going to be, and again, I don't, I don't mean to exaggerate, but they're not potentially going to be licking the tray table or licking the seat or something like that. Whereas, you know, a a younger child might be in every square inch, you know, like kids are, little kids are going to be squirmy. They're going to be rolling all around. They might be on the floor of the plane. So you'd want to at least wipe off the tray table, wipe off the seat for the younger kids. Some people will put a a blanket out and cover, cover that way. Um, The types of reactions that would be uh, possible in that scenario and, you know, I think in, in most people's experiences would be uh, just contact reactions. So like if there's residual of nuts or peanut and you're wearing shorts and or a skirt and the, for a young child and the leg is rubbing on it, it might get red. Again, I wouldn't expect any kind of uh, anaphylactic reaction typically from that. Um, the, when people are eating foods on the airplane, it's not typically strongly airborne, um, meaning the concentration in the air is not particularly high. I wouldn't expect much to happen from that either. And, and again, it would anaphylaxis would be 
I think, very unlikely in that setting. But just wiping the trade tables, actually pre-boarding, um, asking for pre-boarding could be helpful so that you can get on a little bit early and, and wipe off the trade table and seat. Um, put, put down your blanket if you want to. Make sure that the source of uh, food is going to be uh, appropriate. Some airlines, and you can actually check, um, I believe, uh, Food Allergy Research and Education and Allergic Living Magazine, other sources will um, have lists of what the airline uh, accommodations may be for different airlines that could be checked on um, if a family is concerned about, about this. We did some early studies, not on an airplane, um, where we had uh, peanut butter uh, with the children who had very high Ig levels to peanut, about a third of the families had indicated that they uh, found that their child had a reaction just being around the food. And we had uh, it was what's called a double blind study where we have people sniff something that um, was really peanut butter and another thing that was uh, fake peanut butter. So it smelled like it, but it wasn't. And of 30 children, we had them sniff for 10 minutes. No one reacted to the real peanut butter. Actually, one child had trouble breathing uh, with the fake peanut butter, but it was an anxiety response. So various studies have shown that, at least from peanut butter, there's not a lot of protein. There's no pretty much no detectable protein that comes off of the peanut butter, even though you can smell it. Um, it's not the protein in the air. It's the organic matter that people smell. And we also did studies where we would just uh, touch people with peanut butter, and the typical thing is either nothing happens with intact skin or they get a little red in that area, but anaphylaxis you know, is not something that would be expected. So if we turn all of that back to getting into the airplane, I think it's perfectly fine to call ahead. It's perfectly fine to um, you know, ask for some accommodations that many of the airlines give. But at the end of the day, um, it's making sure you have a, a safe food supply, that you wipe off the seat and trade table for the younger kids. And um, for the most part, you should be able to enjoy a safe flight. In terms of arriving, it's pretty much like going to a restaurant uh, throughout your stay. Um, and so, you know, the same types of uh, practices that I tell my patients about for safe restaurant eating is a lot of what I um, emphasize when I talk about uh, vacation planning. And, and we're, we're going to touch about that in one second. Uh, but I'd like to kind of summarize what you said because there's a lot of great information in there and ask you one follow-up question. Right. <clears throat> it sounds like um, essentially the same management strategies apply uh, when you're in the air as what you would do when you're on the ground, um, but the obvious concern being if you're 30,000 feet in the air in a constricted space that if a reaction were to occur, um, that it may not be adequately treated or you may not be uh, able to have access to the kit that you would need. Do you think that that sounds fair? Yes. Okay, and then <laughs> thank you. And you mentioned the wipes. Um, could you clarify? Is it uh, you know a damp washcloth, or are there certain wipes that are better than others at removing um, food proteins? I think it more has to do with some wetness and elbow grease than anything else. Um, so it's, it's I, I'm not talking about you know major major cleaning, but having some wet wipes to be able to just wipe down the areas um, for the younger kids again in case there's residue. That that should uh, help. Okay, thank you. Now, now, if we can, let's go back to the restaurants because I think that's another area of concern, an obvious concern. I know a lot of people with food allergies may even not dine out at all uh, due to concern for potential reactions. But what are some of the best practices that you discuss with people with food allergies to allow them to dine out safely? My suggestions to families actually come from a study that we did a while back where we went into restaurants and we asked uh, waiters, um, the the managers and the chefs how they um, felt about being able to uh, provide safe meals for people with food allergies. And 
for the most, I mean, obviously, no restaurant wants to make anyone sick. So everyone is definitely looking out for their um, food allergic customer. Um, however, when we asked them if they could provide safe meals, we had very high rates of people saying, yes, we could, and we can guarantee safe meals. But then when we asked them simple questions like, you know, can you take the nuts off of the salad? You know, we've, we found fairly high rates of, uh, of the restaurant staff uh, saying, yes, that's okay. Or they thought that uh, high heat broke down the food protein. So they had a number of misconceptions. And, you know, I don't think that um, they're, it could be depended upon that they're going to know all the nuances that a family might be aware of. So using that information, I'll instruct families uh, to educate the restaurant staff as they ask questions or describe the allergy. Um, now, the specific issues you know, differ somewhat depending on what you're allergic to. But let's say, for example, someone's allergic to peanuts and actually, let's say someone's allergic to peanut. I'll have them say that they're allergic to peanut and tree nut because I think it's just easier to, to work that way. Um, so let's say you have someone who's allergic to peanuts, and I would have them say, I'm allergic to peanuts and tree nuts. A small amount could make me sick. So why do I have them say that? Because even if a small amount doesn't make that particular person sick, I have them say it that way because it just starts to trigger this idea that, they, that the restaurant staff has to think about um, that tiny amounts are a problem. And, and I might have them say trace amounts can make me sick. So the next thing is, is that I have them uh, give some examples of cross-contact. So, for example, it would sound like this. Um, so you, you can't be picking nuts or peanuts off my salad. You can't be chopping nuts or peanuts and chopping the food that I'm going to eat. And if you're making me a vanilla milkshake, but you spin peanut butter milkshakes in the same machine, that's no good. So those are some examples of cross-contact. And then the other concept is about hidden ingredients. So they're you know, when, when someone's making something in the restaurant, it could have been prepared days before. It may have ingredients that um, that the waiter may not even be aware of. So in that scenario, I'll have them give the examples. Um, so if there's uh, peanuts or tree nuts in a crust or sauce, um, that could make that could make me sick. So if I put all of that together, it would it would sound like this. Um, I have a peanut and tree nut allergy. A small amount could send me to the emergency room, even a trace amount. So I have to be really careful. You can't be picking nuts off of my salad. You can't be chopping nuts or peanuts in the same place you're making my food. You can't spin my vanilla milkshake in a machine that does peanut milkshakes. And if peanuts or tree nuts are some minor ingredient in your sauces or crusts, I'm going to end up in the emergency room. So that took me, I think, less than about 20 seconds. But it, but it gave some specific examples of um, the key things that the restaurant may not have thought about. I actually um, suggest to my patients that they not rely on the description of the food or assumptions about the food based on what they might see on a menu, but rather make sure that they talk about you know the, these exact um, circumstances. So uh, for families, you had mentioned earlier that there's some families that may not want to go to restaurants at all, and you know I certainly come across families like that. But I do have conversations with them because you know I have patients who are avoiding some really tough to avoid foods. Milk is probably the most difficult, um, and you can imagine as an example if there's a, a restaurant that has chicken soup, but they also have a cream soup, and at some point they put the ladle from the cream cream soup into the chicken soup. Now they've gotten milk into the chicken I say that I may have mixed that up but if they put the ladle from the cream soup into the chicken soup at some point and then you're ordering the chicken soup it, it has milk in it now and that's going to be a problem so 
so for people who have allergies to, to certain foods, I, I give them different examples to be able to talk to the restaurant about. And for people who have multiple, multiple allergies, I'll give them advice on how to instruct the restaurant to make the food safely for them. So I'll give you an example of that. Let's say um, you know that we know that the child could have baked potato, broccoli, and uh, hamburger, beef, but they're allergic to milk and egg and fish and a variety of other things. So in that case, I think that directing the restaurant, assuming they can do this, to prepare the food specific, in a specific way is helpful. So again, you still would tell them about the allergies. You still would tell them about the small amounts, making sick and all that. But then I would say, for my for my baked potato, just wash the potato, wrap it in clean tin foil, put that in the oven. For my hamburger, you're going to make it on a grill, but there's been other things on the grill, cheeseburgers and everything else. Take a clean piece of tin foil. You can put some you know vegetable oil on it, vegetable oil on it. But if you use butter, I'm going to be sick. If the hamburger is made with fresh ground beef and there's no other fillers in it, because fillers would be a problem, if that happened, and I don't want that hamburger, but if it's going to be, you know, just ground beef and nothing else, then you're going to cook that on my tinfoil so it doesn't, you know, touch anything else that's, that's on that grill. I'm going to have broccoli. You're going to steam it. If someone decides it looks dry and they're going to put butter on it on the way to the table, that's a problem. So got to just steam it straight. And you're going to bring these things to me you know, without additional sauces or anything, and I'll add my own salt and pepper. So by directing the restaurant more specifically, you know, for someone who has multiple food allergies, that's that's the way that I advise going. Okay, that, that was a lot, um, which is great. And I, I really like the approach of offering specific details and conversation points for people to practice. Um, before we move on to the last uh, sort of specific scenario, can you just comment for our listeners and uh, discuss the differences in peanut oil? Because I know there's a lot of concern about somebody with peanut allergy eating in a restaurant in which they may use peanut oil. Sure. So um, there there are different types of uh, ways that oils can be made. So for peanut oil, there could be an extruded oil where basically you're squeezing the oil out of peanuts, and that's going to carry with it protein and it pretty much the same as eating peanut protein, which is what people are allergic to. Um, there are also highly processed oils, refined oils, that are just the fat from the food uh, and doesn't have the protein in it. So a highly refined peanut oil technically um, should be safe for people with peanut allergy, but because in restaurants in particular, it's often difficult to know which one you're getting. And, and the um, problem oil is uh, sometimes chosen for more flavor. Uh, I will advise most of my patients uh, to avoid peanut oil just so that they don't get confused with that. Soy oil is typically only um, the highly refined type. So for soy allergy, soy oil is usually okay. But a lot of the other um, oils, uh, like nut oils and such, we do worry about the protein, that protein is in there. Okay, so oils sound like they need to be discussed with one's personal allergist and really tease out what that looks like. Well, uh, I would probably expand to almost everything I've been talking about is good to meet um, you with a personal allergist. <laughs> I, I would echo that as well. So that's an excellent point for us to remind everybody that we're not offering individual medical advice on this podcast and that these are talking points and uh, certainly food allergy management is not one size fits all. So I think that's a good reminder. Thanks. Um, okay. So let's go back to something you briefly touched upon as our, as our last topic. Um, you know, we're talking how we're recording this early um, or at the end of the school year for 2019 and summer's just beginning. But before we know it, kids will be going back to school. 
you mentioned earlier about some talking points for families who are sending their child to school. Can you touch upon uh, some of the things they should discuss with the child's new teacher or school and some of the most important things for them to consider? So a lot of this, uh, again, falls into, you know, the whether the school is new, whether the um, scenario is new for the child, the age of the child, you know, things are so much different for, uh, you know, the a six-year-old versus a 16-year-old. So a lot of the um, discussions are going to be very uh, uh, different depending on all those different circumstances. But I think at, at the end of the day, um, there, there, if it's a new discussion, it's, it's what I mentioned earlier. Um, I recommend to my patients to start out with um, asking the right people in the school how they've managed food allergy in the past. Um, 20 years ago, it was a lot different. Uh, I, you know, I totally supported families coming in with a list of things that they needed to do because the schools weren't so familiar. But nowadays, most, not all, but most schools have experienced children with food allergies before, and they have, you know, some approaches and policies and and things that um, are usually very reasonable. And just understanding what they do and how it's gone um, in the past. But an individual child may have, uh, you know, particular um, issues that have to also be reviewed. Um, the developmental abilities of, of a particular child, even at any given age, may differ. You might have a child who's more apt to grab um, food from someone, um, discussing, you know, what the day looks like, um, who's going to be supervising, how the medication is going to be um, available, so uh, preferably in an unlocked area where it's easily accessible and promptly accessible and that there's someone who can recognize and treat the reactions so that it's not dependent upon that the child of any age um, is, would be the only one uh, either carrying or self-injecting uh, epinephrine, for example. Um, they, there should be some conversations about any uh, school trips or, or how they would be managed. Craft projects for younger kids um, or, or parties. Um, that they can involve food, and so you know if there are substitutes, substitutions um, that people can make, so that it's not all about the food all of the time, or that there would be safe uh, snacks available. Those are all important to think about um, for the younger kids. I mentioned craft projects with food. You know, finger paints might be smoothed with um, egg whites, or you know, people might be deciding to to use foods in different craft projects. Usually, you can substitute something that the child's not allergic to. You'd find something else to do. Um, there's, uh, you know, sometimes there's a substitute teacher. How is, how would the information about the child having the allergy be transferred if there's a substitute teacher that day? Um, I'm running out of additional things, but, uh, no, no, those, are, <laughs> but those are, those, there's a whole long, uh, potential laundry list of things to think about. But again, I would start with finding out what the school usually does, but you want to make sure that you know, the food supply is going to be safe. The, um, activities are going to be safe that, um, the child's going to, you know, have a, you know, have a way of, um, having any reactions identified and treated promptly. So those are the basic things. And I think um, going back to this is how one's personal allergist can certainly help families really um, figure out the talking points and areas of uh, discussion, as you sort of highlighted. Um, as a general rule, when would you recommend that families begin to have that conversation with the school, uh, you know, how far prior to the onset of the school year? And then uh, do you make any recommendations in regards to them touching base again once school starts? Um, well, I think uh, the answers are implied in the questions. Uh, you definitely wouldn't want to start a conversation after your child already was in the school. So, so usually, and also most of the schools are going to be um, 
not have not have the personnel there over the summer. So you're you're probably going to want to look at um, you know the end of the previous school year at the latest to start that conversation. Most people will. Um, be best off probably to touch base with the school even a year in advance just to make sure that they're comfortable with everything. Um, again, it's unusual nowadays to have a school that hasn't experienced something with food allergy before, so um, there should be some things in place. Making sure that you're going in with um, the right paperwork too, so the emergency plan that the allergist or pediatrician would provide, um, the medications, making sure that you know, they have a they can. Um, take the medications and have a place to keep it for the child and review that as well. So there are a lot of um, potential steps, but uh, it, it should not be um, anything that would uh, be too problematic. And thanks for bringing up the paperwork, because as I'm sure you'll agree, I can attest that August is a very challenging time of the year to fill out <laughs> paperwork for all of our patients. So get the papers in early to your allergist or pediatrician so they can help fill it out. And, and get those prescriptions refilled so you have a, a set of, or at least one or or more um, auto-injectors. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Sishur, thank you again for taking the time to be with us today. I, I think this was a, a great and very helpful conversation. Uh, before we depart, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Uh, I would add two things. One is, there. I, I mentioned earlier that there are a lot of uh, resources, um, food allergy research and education, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Allergy, of course, and the college. Um, there's a consortium of food allergy research that also has a website with educational materials. It's under um, cofargroup.org. Um, that includes some uh, materials that were validated in the study in terms of educational uh, materials. So I would uh, suggest that listeners uh, take a look at those types of uh, materials and other uh, of the good stuff that's on the Internet. Um, you had mentioned vetted materials on the Internet, so what I just mentioned are are, are examples of, of vetted materials. The other thing I would say is that, you know, we touched on a lot of areas um, that have to do with nuances, uh, and everybody's different. Um, so, you know, for, for my, my, my I, I get referrals from, you know, children who have multiple, multiple food allergies and multiple allergic problems, and um, I, every patient is different. And so, you know, when I'm in the office with the family, we we individualize our discussions and have very deep discussions about different issues. Um, I'm very sensitive. For example, we didn't talk about bullying. Um, children with food allergies have a higher rate of bullying. I, I talk about those issues. Some children are more sensitive to foods than others, and so the casual exposure issues um, should be discussed. Um, a lot of times, families uh, are particularly worried about that area. Um, we we just did a study where we talked about um, I'm sorry, we just did a study where we looked at uh, families where they were very concerned about casual exposure, and by that I mean being near the allergen, um, and that comes up in all of the scenarios we talked about, whether you're in school or traveling on an airplane or whatnot. Um, I, I mentioned before that most uh, serious allergic reactions would happen from ingestion, not from just being near, smelling, or touching the allergen, so we, in our study we did a um, randomization, so half the kids uh, who were nervous about casual uh, exposure, um, who went to the study, were randomized to touch the allergen that they were allergic to, uh, and then and no one had a reaction to that, but they just touched it with their finger. And then the other half, we just gave educational information about about it, kind of like I did earlier in this podcast. And it turned out that, that just talking about it was very, very helpful, and both groups had an improvement in their quality of life and reduced uh, anxiety about those types of experiences just from talking about it, even without doing the um, demonstration of them touching it. So I think my bottom line is talk to your allergist. If you have concerns about these things, something that you're you know, worrying about, reading about, 
um, that's making it harder to live your life with food allergy. Um, it's really important to discuss that with your allergist because the, the specific thing that's applicable to you or your child may be different than what you're hearing about um, from from you know the general public, uh, things that are in the newspapers and things. It's really it's different experience for different people. So well, that would be my parting words. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think those are great parting words. And Dr. Sisher, thank you again for joining us today. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or Google Play so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.